Hi, everybody, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly. I'm George Heffler, and this is the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, at least according to our guest. Today, our guest is Greggy Hotstetler, who you might know from Podcasts Are Wonderful and the official Prodigal Son podcast. Uh, welcome, Greggy. How's it going? Hey, thank you, George. Uh, doing good. Good, good. Glad to so hear So excited it. to talk about this movie. Uh, yeah, I'm really psyched as well. Uh, this is a great movie. It's interesting because you're one of a couple people now who has picked a sequel instead of the original. And so <laughs> this is, uh, I think it opens up a lot of interesting questions about what horror does in terms of sequels compared to some of the other genres. Before we get too far into this actual movie, I know you think podcasts are wonderful, but uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your history with horror, if it's something that you've been into for a while? or One of my first movie memories is a horror movie. I believe I, I figured out uh, that it, it's the movie The Gate. Have you seen that movie? Yes, classic 80s. Wow. Yeah. Kind of the transitory, I don't want to call it a kid's movie because that kind of diminishes it, but it's certainly mm -hmm. aimed at a younger audience, but it kind of treats them a little bit more like adults. Like there's some pretty scary stuff in that movie. Yeah. So one of my earliest memories of seeing this movie where a kid like has an eyeball open up on his palm and it, I think he stabs the eyeball. It, it completely freaked me out. And, you know, it stayed with me. I must have been very young when I saw this movie. Uh, but I've always really liked horror. Yeah, The Gate, <laughs> it took me a long, long time to figure out what the movie was. Because I also had uh, a memory from it that, like, uh, a little monster came out of a toilet and bit somebody's butt. But I don't think that actually happens in the movie. And I, I have not discovered any horror movie that that actually does happen in. So maybe it's just, like, a dream I had uh, conflating the two. But... Uh, yeah, The Gate was my first one. Uh, I remember Freddy, the Nightmare on Elm Street 6, I believe it was. Uh, was that Freddy's Dead? I, yeah, I guess, uh, that is Freddy's oh, Dead. Oh, boy. I was about to say, I'm expecting a lot from you to, to know which which Friday the first, or, uh, which uh, Nightmare on Elm Street that is. But uh, no, you're, uh, you're an expert. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, Freddy's Dead. That's actually, I think, a pretty interesting one because... So I saw all of the Friday, or excuse me, all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies in a row. And after the dream, the dream kid or whatever the hell <laughs> the, the fifth one is, I was really kind of down on it. And a lot of people really hate the sixth one, but I think that it has a lot of really interesting ideas, especially compared to some of the other ones that probably could have used a little tweaking. So that's definitely an interesting one, especially to kind of have that be something you're into as a, as a younger kid. And you don't know that like, oh, horror snobs look down their nose at it like you're yeah. just like oh i just like this movie i'm a kid what do i know <laughs> yeah like like at the time when that came out on video i remember the other kids you know in my age range was thinking that was like the scariest possible movie <laughs> and i remember uh going to a sleepover and, and watching part of it and uh just being completely terrified but yeah, so I've always been pretty into horror. Uh, my parents let me watch rated R movies, you know, at my own discretion from uh, as long back as I can remember. And I've seen lots of scary movies. I think uh, that kind of contributes now. I don't, I don't actually find horror like scary. Uh, I think it's an interesting genre and I love, I read exclusively horror. That's the only thing I read now, not by... I guess saying exclusively is a bit much, but almost exclusively, I would say. I found that a lot of people who have been into horror for a long time, I know that you and James Harvey have this in similar in that 
if it, you've been into it for so long that you do kind of get uh, numb to it in a way, but your imagination can do so much more work than just seeing something on a screen. So I think that horror books are really kind of the next frontier for people who have been into horror movies for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good, good point. I am curious then because The Gate and, Fri- and Nightmare on Elm Street 6, pretty disparate. This movie that you picked today also doesn't really, doesn't really fall into the same kind of category as either of those other two movies. So I'm really curious about what your favorite horror subgenre is, if you have one. Uh, I read a lot of like cosmic horror, like uh, really, really big things um, <laughs> kind of freak my brain out a little bit. That's kind of where I gravitate. I guess you could kind of, uh, maybe gremlins are, are cosmic horror. Maybe they're from uh, beyond space or something. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would say it's possible. <laughs> who knows? Uh, even the gate could kind of fit into that. Uh, you know, hell depends on where you think hell is, I guess. <laughs> yeah, hey, uh, according to, um, crap, I can't think of it now. That movie with Sam Neill where he goes into space, Event Horizon. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, according to them, hell is that ship, so who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, so yeah, so you mentioned it, and we'll just get into it. The movie that we're talking about today is actually not just Gremlins, but Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Uh, yeah, this is a very interesting pick. It's a movie that I love, but it's it's definitely. I think that a lot of people, even people who are willing to be like, oh yeah, I'll talk about Gremlins as a horror movie. Even Gremlins two fans will be like, this is definitely even more lighthearted than Gremlins one. So I think that we'll have a lot to talk about in terms of what makes this a horror movie and why it sticks out to us as such. Um, because both of us feel that this is the best horror movie ever made. So we, we, <laughs> we, we certainly have a lot to dig into with that. So the movie was released in 1990 and it was directed by Joe Dante, who also directed the first Gremlins movie as well. But unlike the first Gremlins movie, this was written by Charles Haas, who would later go on to write the movie Matinee, which for people who are, I would say, into movies enough to be listening to this podcast, if you haven't seen the movie Matinee, I definitely recommend it. It's really about celebrating the joy of movies, and it's a lot of fun. John Goodman's in it. How can you go wrong with him? John, mm-hmm. great man, more like it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's just a good time. But I digress. This is uh, he writes he writes this, and Rick Baker uh, does the effects of Gremlins Two: The New Batch, which we've talked about him a bunch on the podcast before. But Rick Baker is really an incredible special effects artist. He's worked with Joe Dante before on The Howling, and Rick Baker didn't work on the first movie, but the effects team from the first movie was tied up with The Fly Two. And I thought oh, it was okay. really, yeah, I thought it was really interesting though that Rick Baker didn't want to do this movie because he thought that it was too much work for a project where he wouldn't be like the creator, quote unquote. The design, as it were, uh, gets attributed to uh, Wallace, uh, who, or Wallace, I can't, I can't remember how you pronounce his name, but he's the guy who, dire- who created the effects for the first movie. Uh, he was thankfully persuaded to accept this role when he was convinced that he'd be able to kind of diversify the gremlins and the mogwai and make them more diverse and boy howdy does he <laughs> I mean, absolutely yeah that's yeah I, th- I could see how uh 
you know this script might uh talk him into doing that because the arrange the array of uh different gremlins in this in this uh movie is phenomenal it's phenomenal and i think that that's where a lot of the joy of this movie lies because when you look at the structure of the movie it is ostensibly the same movie as the first one it's the gremlins are back this time we're in new york that's that's the structure of this movie but what makes it unique and what makes it fun is that by diversifying these gremlins not only do you get a lot of cool designs but you get to do a lot more interesting horror stuff with them as opposed to just their actions there's a lot of interesting kind of body horror stuff that happens in this movie um as opposed to just like the violent acts of the gremlins in the first one absolutely yeah I, w- I would say definitely so, especially <laughs> uh, we're not there yet, like to the breakdown, but when they get into, you know, the uh, genetics lab and they become a huge array of, of crazy different monsters, the, the transformations, although also even just uh, the, the, uh, the, the multiplication uh, with the water, uh, that is a huge body horror thing, I think. Like they just start growing these pods on their backs. Very gross. Yeah, it is very gross. I mean, even before they're gremlins and growing the pods, the replication looks extremely painful. <laughs> yeah. Poor Gizmo is screaming on the ground when he gets hit with water and, uh, and it doesn't look like fun. So I think that if you can put yourself in his shoes, like it, it doesn't it seems like he's in for a rough time. Mm-hmm. For those of you who aren't familiar with the movie, like I said, it's basically just the gremlins are back this time in New York city. This is one of a gaggle who went to Manhattan or New York for a sequel. Uh, this includes Jason Voorhees, The Muppets, Kevin McAllister, Crocodile Dundee, and Babe. And Joe Dante, this this movie is so crazy and it's so off the wall in a good way. But Joe Dante only made this movie. He didn't want to do it really. He wanted to go from Gremlins to doing some other stuff. And the reason that it took so long for this movie to come out is because he was just off doing other things. But mm-hmm. uh, Warner Brothers didn't want to sit on it. They were like, oh, we're going to keep trying to use this property. They, they had ideas for like, oh, gremlins go to Mars. Gremlins take over uh, an entire like, coast. And none of them panned out. And so finally, they just threw money <laughs> at, at, uh, <laughs> at Joe Dante and said, please. And so he finally said, okay. And he decided to basically just make a Looney Tunes movie, as evidenced by the opening. Yeah, exactly. That opening cartoon really sets you up uh, for what you're in for. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that jo- uh, that Warner Brothers like let <laughs> Joe Dante make this movie. Like uh, they let him make the crazy movie he wanted to make, and uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it is, and I think that that happens a lot of times. Where whenever you get a studio who finally just like throws their hands up and it's just like, all right, do whatever you want, you nut job the passion really comes across. And I think that when they can wear it on their screen, it's a lot easier for people who are watching it to kind of overlook any flaws that might be there because they're just having a good time. And it's obvious that the people who are making it are having a good time is fun. It's why B horror movies are a a huge genre in and of themselves, because even if they're not the best execution, people can see the heart that went into it. And I think that Joe Dante does that a lot where he he does things the way that he wants to do it. We we mentioned this opening cartoon. It's an incredible Looney Tunes opening. And like you said, it really sets kind of a lighthearted tone. 
and they actually managed to lure Chuck Jones, the creator and developer of several beloved Looney Tunes characters, out of retirement to make this. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and it's it's a lot of fun. This movie came out the year of the 50th anniversary of Bugs Bunny's like creation. And so Daffy comes in, he says, 50 years of hogging the spotlight is long enough. And he kicks him off the shield and he takes over the intro. <laughs> and uh, it's a lot of fun. And I noticed, I was thinking about this intro and I noticed it's a big kind of Amblin thing. Amblin Entertainment produced this movie. That's Steven Spielberg's company. And they also produced Roger Rabbit, which does a lot of kind of Looney Tunes blending um, and has a lot of poking fun at Warner Brothers and Disney at large. Amblin also does Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. Both of those movies were obviously very meta in terms of the way they played with Warner Brothers as an entity. So just kind of an interesting thing that Amblin seems to do a lot. To kick it off, we got that great opening scene. It sets the tone and we open up on New York. Mm -hmm. And the opening credits I find very reassuring. They're uh, big block text letting you know all your favorites are back. We got Zach Galligan, we got Phoebe Cates, we got Dick Miller. They're joined by Robert Picardo and Robert Prosky, along with John Glover and Christopher Lee, somehow, as Dr. Cather. <laughs> I, so good. I don't know why it's sh so shocking to me that he's in it, but he is, and it lends some serious horror cred. I mean, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Christopher Lee, people know him as Saruman the White, but he's also Dracula in the Hammer movies <laughs> um, before a lot of us were born. <laughs> and he definitely takes up a huge place in the horror zeitgeist. So even just seeing his name, you're like, oh yeah, we're, we're in for a good movie here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, the opening credits, uh, they kind of struck me because they are very plain. Like, uh, you, you know, you get Gremlins 2, the title card for a second, and it, you know, flashes off. We're just going, zooming through New York. I guess it's just, you know, a product of being pre, you know, big computer graphics and stuff like that, more than anything else but just uh the 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 starkness of the uh the titles was interesting to me so these are actually uh stock video of new york from oh, one of the one of the superman movies oh, okay <laughs> so they were reusing that and so uh i think just as a budget thing they're like all right just use this throw some <laughs> uh, throw our names on there yeah i guess they didn't have drones back then they just <laughs> zoom around wherever they wanted if only i, I mean look <laughs> He, he predicted enough smart tech in this. You'd think that. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Joe Dante, he, the one thing he missed out on was drones, unfortunately. <laughs> so we get this great, all these great aerial shots, and a fancy limo rolls up to the shop where the dad got the Mogwai in the first movie. Mm -hmm. Nice way to kind of ground us and be like, hey, here's something you recognize right away. But something is different. There's a lot of construction around it kind of makes you feel a little uneasy you get you understand immediately that times are changing things are moving forward and you can immediately tell that this kind of shop is getting forced out luckily we're soothed immediately by hearing that classic mogwai song hmm. um gizmo starts doing his little tune it's great and you also get a really interesting intro to out of touch media mogul daniel clamp here daniel clamp is basically a stand-in uh for donald trump but with silver instead of gold. And uh, he's combined with Ted Turner's media empire. His instinct is to just throw money at the problem. The shop owner from the first movie who sold the Mogwai, or who uh, had it stolen from him basically in the first one, um, he doesn't want to sell. 
And Daniel Clamp uh, insists that I develop the biggest buildings in New York and you sell uh, little things. And so Wing is the only holdout in developing the Clamp Chinatown Center, uh, where business gets oriented. Who's <laughs> like, so oh rough. boy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, that's that's not good. Um, but it, but it's, I mean, Clamp, he is kind of. I mean, by the end, he, he redeems himself quite a lot. But it, at the beginning here, he is kind of a villain. So you know, maybe him being uh, a little problematic is okay. Definitely, and it's interesting because you can kind of see where script rewrites happened as the movie evolved. I read that in an initial draft. Clamp was originally much more of the villain. And Mm -hmm. as the story just naturally evolved, they had Forrester, Mr. Forrester, the security guy, become much more of the villain instead of Clamp so that they could have him be redeemed and be an interesting character. But this beginning part definitely feels like a leftover piece from when he was a big villain because you know, he comes in, he's trying to buy this property, he uh, throws money at it, he has this problematic phrasing. It's just, it's funny to see that. And But it does, it does still work. You're, you get an idea of who this guy is right away. Yeah, and you also get a, a really good idea of it, because rather than showing up to Mr. Wing's shop himself, uh, Forrester brings in a TV and VCR <laughs> That they just set up, like, I think they just knock something off of a table uh, to set this up to play Clamp's message for him. A very good bit of writing here because they they tell him he can keep the TV. Uh, Then Gizmo, like, (laughs) turns the channel after they leave (laughs) and uh, watches some Rambo, which comes in later. Hell yeah. He gets, like, scolded by Mr. Wing like a naughty child. (laughs) And he's like, oh, TV is a a device for idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Gizmo. He just wants to watch Rambo. And we, we see the Clamp crew leaving, and they say that they're just going to wait him out because he's so old. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh at that. It's such like a morbid decision-making <laughs> process, but I was like, hey, it makes sense. And it's a good plan because a mere six weeks later, <laughs> we're yeah. seeing a news report about his death. This is a nice way to kind of wrap up what's happening and – not leave people being like, oh, well, like, where's all the stuff from the first movie? And Sad Gizmo is just heartbreaking. Yes. He is so upset. He has a little, like, mourning uh, armband on. <laughs> and uh, he flee. they're demolishing the building. And they obviously don't know he's in there. They think it's just a shop full of trinkets. And so they're demolishing it. And as they're demolishing it, he flees the, the building. And he gets picked up by Martin and Lewis, who are employees at the genetics lab that is inside of Clamp Tower. Um, They're both named after Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. I think that that also kind of just sets the tone in terms of like, they're going for a lot of like slapstick comedy in this. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of fun and they're here to have a good time. Just like the first movie, we're going to get a really interesting blend of a horror and comedy. And I think that that's something that these movies balance in a way that, literally no other horror comedy balances a lot of other horror comedies have to have kind of a cynical edge to them and i don't think that that's the case with the gremlins movies especially gremlins 2 which is um not even which gremlins 1 has some darkness uh, at its core and uh, i talk about in that episode we talk about how the town seems very like economically depressed and everyone is out of work but in this one, it's just a good time. There's some horror elements, but you're having fun the entire time. 
And uh, it's it's really remarkable that they managed to do that. I definitely agree. Like, I, I think they, there's an extra scoop of comedy in this one. I'll admit that. Uh, some of the scenes are, you know, individually pretty uh, creepy. Um, yeah, definitely they are. But I, I just mean, like, in terms of the general atmosphere of it, there are definitely scary moments in this movie and some really unsettling stuff happens, especially like that transformation that we talked about earlier. As a general movie, I think that it's it's very lighthearted. Um, and that that's what makes those moments so much more effective and stand out the way that they do. Yeah. Well, I think uh, a big part of that is I think the gremlins are, are not killers necessarily. They're pranksters. They're, right. they're, uh, they're just uh, messing with you. Uh, they might kill you. I mean, it's very possible that they will murder you, but they will do it because uh, it's funny too, rather than because uh, <laughs> they, they hate you or they want to eat you or whatever. Definitely. I, I agree. And I think that that's uh, spot on in terms of where that attitude comes from. Gizmo is absconded with, and we see Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates are introduced back into the movie as Billy and Kate. They're rushing to work and discussing their bad fortune since moving to the city. And um, basically, they're broke. That's, <laughs> that's the yeah. long and the short of it. Uh, we also get an update on the Futtermans from the first movie, who uh, Dick Miller is Mr. Futterman. And after getting almost killed by the gremlins driving his own snowplow into his house, uh, Mr. Futterman is finally on the mend. And in fact, they're also on their way to New York. So we can count on seeing them again later. Yeah. As they get into work, I really want to point out that this, the visual gags in this movie are just incredible. Yeah, the visual gags in this are really remarkable. I mean, right away, we get this automatic door called the Entrymatic, a revolution in revolving door precision and efficiency. <laughs> and in all we're, the way that we're introduced to it is it's trapped a guy inside of it spinning backwards. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. And we get to see this prediction of kind of smart technology, this integrated into the building itself. but even more than this prediction of smart technology, which would have been really impressive on its own. I think the fact that we see smart technology that doesn't work <laughs> is mm -hmm. hilarious and remarkable. I mean, how many times have you had to yell at Siri? No, Siri, <laughs> what is the, uh, like, I mean, you have to do that. I've seen a ton of Roombas who just get trapped in the corner and, and are just bumping against things. This prediction is incredible. I mean, it's so <laughs> far away from happening in 1990 that you really got to give Joe Dante some props for this. Yeah. Well, I think uh, part of this is, you know, something when, when you're making a sequel, you kind of take the things from the, the first movie and kind of iterate on them a little bit. And uh, a lot of times that is, you just take everything from the first movie and do them again in the second movie. Uh, but in this one, it's a very interesting way to do it because uh, in the first movie, Billy's dad was an inventor and he came up with all these crazy dumb inventions that didn't really work in the second movie rather you know J billy's dad isn't in the movie uh but they kind of take that that aspect of the story and they give it to clamps like smart building or whatever uh so there's all these these crazy uh modern conveniences in this building uh that, that you know like you said don't actually make anything easier they just make everything more complicated more difficult to use and it's kind of a, an interesting uh iteration on that theme a lot of it has to do with, I mean, I'll definitely talk about this more because this 
this theme definitely comes up a lot, it seems like, but there's sort of this undercurrent of forced modernization that winds up forcing a down downturn in quality. Um, mm-hmm. I was kind of extrapolating a little bit, and I was trying to think of why this theme might run through it. And uh, the early 1990s were when CGI was really starting to take off. 1995 is when Toy Story came out, which was the first all-CG feature-length film. And in the years prior to that, it was taking more and more of a place in culture. It was this new and exciting thing. People were using it where they could. And I mean, especially brand new CG is not nearly as high quality as practical effects. And the Gremlins are really a strong instance of practical effects. And I think that Joe Dante has had a real passion for them throughout all of his movies. I mean, The Howling definitely jumps to mind with that as well. And so I I was just wondering to myself if that theme might have something to do with the state of movies at the time. I don't know. Do you think that that might ring true a little bit or you think I'm overthinking it? Maybe if I had to to say, you know, whether or not I think that that is what Joe Dante had in mind, uh, I would say maybe not, but I think, like I said earlier, so they make things more complicated, these inventions that he's got in this building, uh, rather than simplifying things. And it, if, you, if you take that as the theme and kind of extrapolate from it, I mean, it, it kind of fits because sometimes the computer graphics or whatever, you think they're going to look better. You think they're really, the reason they use them is because they're easier to do. They're just less manpower intensive and stuff. I mean, right. it, it, it's sort of uh, removed, I guess the director has to actually be there with the guy working with the models. Uh, whereas with its, when it's computers, you know, it, it, it might be a whole warehouse full of people doing these effects, but the director doesn't actually see that. They only see the finished product. But yeah, I think uh, it, it, it's sort of like the same theme, I guess. Uh, you know, he, he may have had something else in mind when he was making the movie, but it's the, it's, it's the same sort of thing you can apply to uh, different things as well. Yeah, I agree. So they go in through this door, and or they go through the regular door after, yeah, we yeah. See, after we see this thing spinning around. And we get a look at the Clamp Tower Guide outfits, which are hilarious. They have a hat <laughs> with a big silver replica of the building. She displays a book that looks just like the art of the deal entitled I Took Manhattan, just really laying it on, kind of reinforcing who this guy is. Billy Peltzer, who is Zach Galligan, we get a little more characterization of him but it really reinforces that he although has moved up is kind of in a similar situation to where he was in his small town where he's underappreciated at his job and he's just trying to get along right now he's working as it seems like an architectural concept artist sort of (laughs) they never exactly say what he does but right now he's designing um, the concept for this chinatown uh, center and he's creating this huge colorful artwork, but creativity is quashed uh, at this job, both by his immediate boss, Marla, and Mr. Forrester, who's the head of security that we mentioned before. Uh, he comes in and condemns an unauthorized potted plant because it has a possible aphid infestation. And mm-hmm. the art of his hometown is taken down because, quote unquote, do you know how much we've spent on art from recognized artists at this facility? Eye-pleasing color-coordinated, 
authorized. <laughs> and <laughs> it's such a great intro to this character because he is just such a shithead. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Such a stickler for the rules, and you understand immediately who he is. Yeah, well, it's kind of uh, backtracking a little bit, but all the all the little characters that we meet on the way into work with Billy and Kate, uh, they are all like your classic New York shitheads. Like they're all, you know, me first, pushing them out of the way, and like the guy that that spins around in the uh, the the revolving door. That would have been them if if he hadn't pushed past them uh, to get in first. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, when Billy goes upstairs to his to his office. Um, his boss Marla is like sort of a caricature of a, a very '90s business executive type. Like she's very high on the uh, prize, power hungry. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, so, th- so then, uh, what was what was uh, Picardo's name again? Uh, Mr. Forrester. Mr. Forrester, exactly. Yeah, he is uh, another one of those kind of guys. Like he's uh, also very corporate. When the, when he points out the art. Like that is very <laughs> your classical. Oh, fancy art! It's just a, a circle and a square on a on a you know <laughs> on a canvas. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a fun scene with you know stereotypes we've all <laughs> grown very accustomed to. They show you that not only is he this buttoned-up corporate stool or a stu- uh, yeah corporate sto- uh, st- stool uh, stooge. stooge. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's a bit of a stool. I mean, yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, so he's this buttoned-up corporate stooge and he his intro kind of continues by he goes up to his lair in the security area and he fires henry gibson who you may know as the head nazi in blues brothers um (laughs) via camera and intercom for an unauthorized break it's funny you see him like sneak away and he lights up a cigarette and they just nail his ass. <laughs> They're like, he's, uh, he takes great pleasure in announcing his firing and uh, especially in the termination of his medical benefits. So this really vindictive guy who just takes pleasure in the pain of others. The next character that we get to meet is Grandpa Fred, who is based off Al Lewis's Grandpa Munster. He's a, a horror host of an underfunded TV show on the Clamp Network, and he's very charming, although he admits that he thought he was going to do something meaningful with his broadcast degree, <laughs> like news. I'm curious if you have any uh, favorite horror hosts, or if you watched any as a kid. No, that was something that totally missed me. Like, I, I know it from uh, pop culture, specifically, definitely from this movie, uh, so much so that I thought it, it might be possible that the guy that played him was actually, uh, you know, Grandpa Munster, but I looked it up and he's another character actor who I recognize from a lot of things. Uh, he does, he's a really great character in this, uh, but no, that's not something that I've ever had real direct uh, experience with. I recently have gotten back into it uh, thanks to the Elvira movies. And then also Joe Bob Briggs has been uh, doing a show on the Shutter Network that I've been really enjoying. So I've heard that Joe Bob Briggs show is really good. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and he's insanely knowledgeable. So uh, I definitely recommend it to people who have Shudder. He sounds and, like a real George type. Yeah, yeah well, thank you. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa Fred and Billy, they discuss that Mr. Clamp foregoes the horror classics in lieu of the newer stuff because the classics are all in black and white, and he only likes color. And again, this this comes up. This is when we get a chance to see the genetic research lab. There's a lot of fun bits that happen here 
right away, first off, it's named Splice of Life Designer Jeans. <laughs> That's just a great name for it. Two puns right away. Uh, there's also an homage to Donovan's Brain, a horror book and multi-time movie adaptation with the W.H. Donovan nameplate. And this is also yeah. I stopped. I stopped it to see that, and uh, it didn't mean anything to me. So it's interesting to find out what the uh, what what the reference was there. Yeah, well, it's funny because I'll admit that I didn't know it in the moment, and okay. so I I noticed it, and I was like, it was so obviously deliberate that I yeah. like, in my notes wrote, "Look up W. H. Donovan." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so there you go. It's Donovan's brain, okay. and uh, Christopher Lee is the. I guess, doctor of this genetic research lab. His name is Dr. Uh, crap, what's his name? Dr. Catheter. Yes, his name is Dr. Catheter. Very funny. <laughs> just a, like I like that it's just such a like fun throwaway joke. They're just like, hey, call him Dr. Catheter. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he gets a package delivered to him, and he's psyched, and he says it must be his malaria, but he's disappointed to find out it's just rabies, and he already has rabies. <laughs> so that's fun. And he walks in, and he we see Martin and Lewis, the people, or, or initially we only saw one of them. But we see them both here. They're twins working on cloning, which is another good visual gag. And they show Gizmo to Christopher Lee. Gizmo does a fun little, uh, he boogies down to Fats Domino. It's a good time. Yeah, It's a fun dance. He's such a cutie, that uh, Gizmo. Exactly. This is a great scene because <laughs> they set Gizmo up as being like the cutest possible thing. Uh, they have him dance to this song. Uh, he he gets a huge grin on his face and he's dancing around and it's incredibly cute. Martin and Lewis are watching him and they're dancing along because of uh, what an infectious little personality this guy has. And then it cuts to Dr. Catheter and he's absolutely disgusted. He <laughs> uh, it's, it's very funny. Yeah, it is. And Gizmo takes this opportunity to try and make a dash for it, but uh, <laughs> Dr. Catheter is on to him and quickly grabs him. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, not, it's not all sunshine for Gizmo at this point. But we get another funny joke when we cut back to Billy. Uh, his light turns off because he sat still for too long. This, this really cracked me up because <laughs> I, uh, when I worked at an ad agency that I used to work at, it would be frequent that you would have to stay until 8, 9, 10 p.m. And they had those lights and it more than once the lights turned off on me. And just like him, you have to, you like, oh, how do I get this to go without actually having to put any effort into it? And you just kind of hop around in your chair a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it was very relatable. And so very much I, something that still happens. Yeah. And uh, as Billy is, doing this fidget he hears the delivery guy whistling gizmo's tune and through him finds out that gizmo is in the lab and uh, breaks him out relatively uneventfully he kind of goes in there sees gizmo gets him lets loose a couple of monkeys and then gets out nice and easy he runs into the men's room and i want to take this opportunity to say that i think my favorite character in this entire movie is the building itself it like every time it talks it makes me laugh there are so many funny touches like when he walks into the bathroom it goes mister welcome to the men's room and it <laughs> just absolutely slayed me um it's such a fun little thing and it's used just enough where every time it comes in you're still like all right they're not overdoing it it's funny but not so often that you become bored of it so 
just really great yeah. job uh, with the building. <laughs> it's definitely got some great lines. Uh, I know later on, one of one of them is uh, tonight on Clamp Network. Uh, Casablanca now in color and with a happier ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a lot of fun goofs uh, that they get to get a lot of fun throwaway lines with. And Billy, he manages to get Gizmo out of there. He stashes him in a drawer until he can get him home. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Clamp surprises everyone by dropping by. The people are not expecting this, but he promises to be more hands-on. And he likes Billy's drawings, which is nice. Good for you, Billy. And so he says, uh, you better lose the trees that his boss just told him to add. So <laughs> yeah. we get a nice little confirmation that uh, Billy's taste is at least spot on and that he is, in fact, uh, underappreciated. And it's not just that he's bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this shine that Mr. Clamp takes to him also sparks an interest from his boss, Marla, who says it could be a career advancement opportunity for both of them. And she starts trying to put the moves on him. And she convinces Billy to meet her for dinner at some chic new Canadian restaurant. <laughs> Which, yeah. I don't know why that's such a funny idea to me. Like, <laughs> there, are, there is plenty of great Canadian uh, food, but just mm-hmm. like uh, the tacky uh, theme restaurant that they, yeah. <laughs> that they go to is hilarious. Um, yeah. He mostly agrees to go so she won't discover Gizmo in the drawer. Yeah. Billy tells him to stay put while she goes to clean up. But the minute that Billy turns around, Gizmo does not do that. <laughs> he, uh, he repels out. And Billy asks Kate to pick Gizmo up at, while he's at dinner. And mm-hmm. Kate says, like, oh, I don't want to do that. I can't believe you went and got him. What if they start running around New York? And Billy says they won't as long as we follow the rules. And there's a nice little scene here where he reminds her and the audience of the rules. So yeah. for those of you who don't recall, it's don't get them wet, don't shine a bright light at them, and don't feed them after midnight. Just like in the first one, almost immediately <laughs> the uh, rules get broken. There's a faulty water fountain who is being repaired by actually the actor who played Gomez in the Adams family <laughs> and Gizmo says uh, Gomez when he sees him, which is a fun, <laughs> little, uh, fun little thing. And it's funny though, because when I first saw this movie, I was like, Oh, it's awfully convenient that the water fountain is malfunctioning, but it, it really, it totally makes sense. We've seen exactly. so much stuff malfunctioning already that this quote, like this overly convenient plot, uh, convenience just becomes realistic when you can uh, have the rest of this stuff setting it up. So it's really right. nice script writing there. It's it's just part and parcel of uh, the whole thing with the smart building and everything. Like uh, nothing, nothing really works the way it's supposed to. And uh, this is just another aspect of that. Also on a, on a previous episode, you mentioned that uh, a big part of what makes people buy into horror movies is if they have rules and they stick to them. And I think Gremlins, I mean, (laughs) they put it way more front and center than almost any other movie, but also they completely stick to the rules. And uh, it helps it not to feel cheap, you know, when uh, suddenly there are millions of of little green monsters running around. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think that the only other movie series that I can think of that it has the rules as front and center is the scream franchise and part of what makes that franchise interesting is that they don't follow the rules as much they 
they do a lot of breaking of the rules. And so mm-hmm. Gremlins, like, by bringing you in on it and being like, here are the rules of this movie and this monster, it, it really lets you buy in, like you said, and like I said, <laughs> because <laughs> you, you have this understanding of exactly the consequences and what's going to happen if the plot beats happen. And mm-hmm. so you can kind of prepare yourself for it and understand the consequences and the stakes of what's happening. In no other movie could could you uh, see like a faulty water fountain and uh, be filled with a sense of dread that things are about to go bad, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And one thing I think that's really interesting in this movie in particular compared to the first one is that, so this water shoots out and it, runs down Billy's uh, painting and it picks up that paint. And so when the water lands on Gizmo, they're all, the gram- or the other mogwai that pop out of him are all different colors because of the paint on Billy's drawing. And so it's these kind of little touches where like they never acknowledge that. They're never like, this is why. But you, you get to see it like run over and then land on him. And they have all these fun, bright colors. They're like oranges and blacks and they uh, are kind of calico colored. It's mm-hmm. a really nice touch that is something you can pick up on, on rewatches and stuff that really makes you feel like you're engaged in the movie and like you're taking part in it by picking up more and more as you go through. I think that that kind of rewatchability is such a huge part of what makes a good horror movie a good horror movie. That's really interesting because I've seen this movie maybe more times than any other movie. And I've never picked up on that. That's a really interesting point. <laughs> well, there you go. You learn something new every day. All, we get a couple of new guys. I think there's three new guys pop out from him. And one of mm-hmm. them crawls out of the trash. And it's so evil. It's crazy. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> it's, his name is Mohawk. He immediately hisses at Gizmo. He has yeah. big fangs. He has Darth Maul eyes. And... You, Perhaps most unsettlingly, we hear the classic refrain of Gizmo Kaka, <laughs> as, <laughs> as uttered by Stripe in the first movie. And uh, Mohawk gathers up his new cohorts and they force Gizmo into the vents. Yeah, it's really fun how uh, they, they each have like kind of a distinctive look to them uh, that carries out throughout the movie. You can track where these gremlins are out of all the hundreds that are later birth thanks to uh different shenanigans that go on but these specific ones you always know who they are because they have these very distinctive look here at, at the very beginning yeah and it's funny that i the first time i saw it was honestly not that long ago when i was watching it for the first time i was like oh wow look at these goofy gremlins this is probably as crazy <laughs> as it will get <laughs> <laughs> nope not the case <laughs> and so so these guys all forced gizmo into the vent And Kate was never really the owner of Gizmo or anything. So she's not that familiar with him. And she comes to pick up Gizmo. But Daffy, one of the new gremlins, is sitting on top of a skyscraper model with a fun King Kong homage. And Kate assumes that this is Gizmo and picks him up and takes him home. And this is a bad idea. (laughs) She gets all kinds of food and stuff thrown at her, but... 
you know, this is, you got to always double check when you're picking something up. <laughs> um, this is also the scene where we get to actually see the Canadian restaurant. It's very funny, very tacky. Um, it has mugs that look like timber, a ram's head on the column that its face is directly in the middle of the table. <laughs> um, the waiters are dressed like Mounties. There's Jolt Cola and Molson and the waiter rolls up with a chocolate mousse that is an uh, actual mousse and not a mousse like a chocolate mousse you would normally have hmm. and offers to cut off an antler. We also hear an announcement for Gretzky party of six, a, eh? and it's just really, they pack a lot into this little scene that is, is fun. We get a little bit of plot advancement. Marla comes on to him and Billy is, he's like a little kid. Like he's just like, I, I got to get out of here. I, he doesn't seem to even really understand what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so he wraps it up real quick and he hurries home when he feels marla put her foot on his uh genitals <laughs> yeah so, yeah that was a that was a bit much for this this movie yeah pretty far uh, but <laughs> but yeah uh it seems like there might have been more of a kate thinks billy cheated on her like plot line originally in the script or something that doesn't really get picked up on that much. Uh, there's a little bit of conflict from it, but, but you know, not what you would expect, which is, is good to me. Like I, I don't really enjoy that sort of a subplot. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that sort of thing feels a little cheap. Um, it's easy to kind of shove that in. And I think that the way they handle it is actually really interesting. I like the way that Kate reacts as well. And uh, we'll talk about it when it actually happens, but I think it's, <laughs> it's really interesting um, that it's not the typical way that this kind of thing would play out in a, in a movie. So Billy heads home and he tells Kate that that's not Gizmo and they have to take him back to the office. But the Futtermans are here, womp womp. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, the, they kind of bust in and they call them little piggies and <laughs> so the place is a mess. Um, and Billy basically is like, hey, you guys got to get out of here. Um, you need to leave. And they're like, all right, we'll go to the hotel, but we just want to let you know that we're here. <laughs> so yeah. it's very funny that, like, that's clearly for us, too, just to be like, all right, we're in the story yeah. now. <laughs> Another interesting scene where you would expect for them to get, like, offended that they don't want them to to hang around but he's like oh well no i mean we are from out of town we should go get a hotel yeah he's like all right no problem we'll go check into the hotel <laughs> bye it's like oh yeah. all right great good job futtermans <laughs> <laughs> um meanwhile back at clamp tower the uh the mogwai have started causing havoc at a froyo place and it's a very funny scene there's a, it's just a lot of jokes i'm not even gonna try and uh, like talk about it to people because it's just jokes from top to bottom, a lot of visual stuff, um, some funny lines that are delivered in a very deadpan way. So you'll just have to enjoy it when you watch it. But yeah, and and if you haven't seen it, definitely stop listening to this and go watch the movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. You should you should watch this movie. It really uh, it's is very funny. It's really funny how every Mogwai that isn't Gizmo is just gunning to become a gremlin. They just want to do it so bad. Yeah, I, I don't know why that is the case, but they're all <laughs> evil as soon as they come out of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that's the case, but it makes for some good movies. So <laughs> <laughs> um, back at Clamp Tower, they're causing the problems and Billy and Kate show up again and the entry-matic is again malfunctioning, has someone new trapped in it. <laughs> and <laughs> the mechanics are trying to get her out and the building goes 
the entrymatic is being upgraded to serve you better. <laughs> I just, boy, I just love it so much. And Billy, he realizes that all that they can try and do is turn off the waters, that they're only fighting the three of them. But mm-hmm. we've already seen this crazy, like, eye-in-the-sky security center. They immediately notice Billy uh, breaking the door to the water, and that draws the attention of a security guard who goes down to check it out. And he's attacked by the Mogwai that they're trying to sneak in. So that guy uh, gets in. or Yeah, so Daffy, the Mogwai that they were bringing back, just kind of runs off. And the security guard takes Billy away. Kate goes unnoticed, thankfully. But the camera pans up and reveals the eggs that show the, the Mogwai are becoming gremlins after eating this froyo. So... Yep. This is really kind of the, the beginning of the rising action here. Kate goes and bails Billy out of jail as a parade of mimes are led into it. It's kind of weird. I don't know that I understand this bit, <laughs> but it makes me laugh. It's just weird mimes miming their way into jail. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like uh, the old Zucker Brothers movies where like every frame has some kind of a joke going on in it. Like yeah. even if... Even if uh, Billy and Kate are just talking about how she bailed him out of jail. There's going to be some mimes in the background for some reason. Yeah. And it's nice. It gives you something to look at just as she's on her way in. So I certainly can't say that I disagree with the choice. Um, Mm -hmm. And as Gizmo is wandering around in the vents, (laughs) he falls down into the area that Billy and Kate were and just in time for the eggs to hatch. That guy really just cannot catch a break. (laughs) The poor Gizmo just is immediately attacked by the lead gremlin, Mohawk, who starts a long torture regimen for the poor guy. Gizmo goes through a lot in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some, some great characterization here for Kate. This is, this is kind of where that, che- I mean, I don't want to call it like a cheating thing because he doesn't actually do anything, but this is where that plot line kind of comes to a head. It, but it comes to a head by fizzling out a little bit. Billy and Kate are approached by Marla, who flirts with Billy. And Kate just says, Billy, if we get out of this alive, you're in big trouble. And yeah. I really respect that commitment to pressing matters. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I think that Kate is very practical. I think that this has been demonstrated in the first movie and in the beginning of this movie. Not only does this feel like a legitimate thing that her character would do, it also makes sense that they they're, they moved together into this big city like it feels like they're in a trusting relationship and so they feel more mature than they did in the first movie by being like not just immediately flipping out and going off the handle yeah that's true and and in a in a usual movie like uh kate would uh be completely mad at billy and and run off on her own and he would have to come save her uh but instead she is uh you know a, a full character uh, who is able to think things out logically. And she says, you know, <laughs> right now we have gremlins that are trying to kill us. So we have to uh, have that be priority one. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it does make her feel like a, a full character, which is nice and not just a plot device. Mm-hmm. So Billy goes to tell the security team to evacuate the building, but they mock him. And this is, I think, a really good way to dismiss the people who complain about the absurdity of the rules. Yeah, um, the it's a very funny scene, and I can't say that 
I haven't also been like, uh, the eating after midnight thing doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> your body is made up of mostly water. Uh, we see them drinking beer and that's mostly water. Why doesn't that turn them <laughs> into uh, more monsters? But yeah. this, this scene, I mean, he demonstrates some of the audience members by having some security people talk about, oh, what if they have leftover food particles in their mouth? And what about time zones? And as they're mocking Billy for this, a gremlin just jumps out of the console, and chows down on the guy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a great moment in terms of what it does for the script and just being like, no, you just had to go with it. But I think that this is also the first kind of like real horror moment. This is a really good jump scare. It feels like yeah, it comes absolutely. out of nowhere. And it really bites down on him in a way that you're like, oh, that thing has a huge chunk of him in its mouth. Yeah, um, it like claws the other security lady as well, giving her a big, uh, you know, scratch from it. Yeah. It kind of, uh, it, it's kind of like Joe Dante saying, okay, so if you want to get technical, yes, the rules don't make sense. Like if, <laughs> if I was going to court the Gremlins rules, uh, I might have a little bit of pr- trouble, but it makes common sense. Come on, guys. You all get it. <laughs> Let's just watch the movie, okay? Yeah, if you're not going to be an asshole about it, then you can <laughs> roll with it. <laughs> and yeah. that's, I think, the the moral of that scene. And mm-hmm. Billy manages to uh, kill this gremlin with a flashlight, a very bright flashlight that he has. So that he demonstrates- Does he kill it or does he just oh, he drives it, it away. away? You're right, yeah. He, he drives it away. And- this not only demonstrates to them that this, the gremlins are real, but it also shows that the rest of the rules are also true because mm-hmm. he manages to use the light. So good, good job there, Billy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also good that, you know, in, in a badly written horror movie, the, 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 the security guys might see this, but they might go, they, you know, they might still not believe what is going on. Whereas the, the security guy immediately uh, jumps to, you know, listening to Billy and, and trying to do what he can to uh, help stop what what's going on here. Yeah, I think that it is interesting that Mr. Forrester, who is definitely like the villain of this movie, is more willing to listen and be on the right side of history here than the cops in the first movie where <laughs> Billy tells them about the problem and then they dismiss him. And then when they see them, they literally see them. They're just like, we should drive away. <laughs> they yeah. go to leave. So good job for you, Mr. Forrester. <laughs> um, next we get to see kind of where Kate is at right now. And Kate is in the studio watching Microwave with Marge being filmed. <laughs> Another uh, very prescient moment in the movie. Yeah, definitely. Not only the prescientness of like the way that these infomercial things are filmed, but also just the way that we have these hyper specific um, like channels and stuff. At one point, right before this, we see uh, the archery channel being filmed <laughs> and a guy who is dressed as Robin Hood comes out and just like all these hyper specific channels. I mean, for God's sake, CISO was a, an entire platform developed to uh, cater to comedy nerds. Like it's, yeah, it's gotten more and more niche. Uh, I mean, Shudder is the same thing for horror. So very, like you said, very prescient by Joe Dante. Marge of Microwave with Marge is getting tanked on Sherry while she (laughs) makes bologna and bean dip (laughs) roll-ups. It's so gross sounding. And one thing that really sticks out to me here is that the gremlins in part two look way nastier. 
than the ones in the first one. Just like yeah. grotier. Like they have, uh, they feel a little slimier, more pebbly. Uh, and I, I guess it's just advances in effects tech, but it looks great. And Marge is assaulted by gremlins as Phoebe is watching this. The gremlins blow up the microwave, which is a nice little bit of revenge for the first movie. <laughs> and uh, this causes the sprinkler system to activate. And that, unfortunately, is where things really start to pop off. This creates yeah. a whole lot more fully formed gremlins. Yeah, from now on, like there are hundreds of gremlins everywhere in this movie, which is really fun. Very good. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. And they just start causing havoc right away. This havoc includes manipulating Kate's elevator. And <laughs> when she says, sound the alarm to the elevator, uh, they start mimicking the alarm. And God, one of my favorite things about the gremlins is just their flair for the dramatic. <laughs> like, every time they roll up in like a new costume, like the Usher costume in the first one or any of the outfits in this one, or they do something silly like that, I'm just like, man, the gremlins are just so fun as characters. <laughs> Yeah, that elevator scene actually is kind of one of the creepier scenes in the movie. Oh, yeah. She's trapped in there. It's a confined space. They're really screwing with her. Yeah. It's messed up. There's also a moment right in this kind of havoc scene where a gremlin replaces Mr. Clamp's secretary. Oh, yes. It's This is... There's one other gremlin who is probably my favorite, but this secretary gremlin is probably my second favorite because... <laughs> There's a moment where he just like clasps his hands together and just looks so pleased with himself. <laughs> this really, is really funny. Yeah, it cracks yeah, me up. I would say, in a way, like here's my reach of the episode. In a way, Clamp is kind of like a gremlin himself before before the gremlins show up. Like uh, he's very bored, you can tell. Uh, oh, like yeah. when he just goes down and visits this other floor for no reason just to look around like when he just buys this uh the chinatown uh space he doesn't even bother to show up there uh he seems very bored every time we see him uh and he's kind of creating havoc just because he's a billionaire with all the money in the world like he can do whatever dumb thing that comes into his mind like create a smart building where nothing actually works when, when the secretary gremlin shows up he, he's like inventing things for her the real secretary to do like shredding his mail uh there's a funny little joke there where you see uh like the presidential seal on a letter that she's just shredding and you know he, he's kind of a kind of a, a little mischief maker he, do, he isn't doing it on purpose necessarily you know he, just having too much money makes you makes you uh, a prankster i guess yeah and i think a lot of it a lot of it also has to do with the fact that he seems like a pure id basically a lot of it is just doing whatever he feels like in that moment, whether it's promoting someone or telling someone to, to, to shred stuff or <laughs> having a, a new idea for an invention. I mean, he's very, I don't want to say fickle, but he just kind of does whatever the hell he wants, just like a gremlin. So I'm inclined yep. to agree with you. <laughs> but then the gremlins show up and it, it gives him a sense of purpose. Like he, uh, he does battle with this, this silly uh, secretary gremlin who is taking dictation for him and says, A, B, C, D, X, Y, J. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Very, very silly and very funny. But it, it then it springs at him to attack him. Uh, he puts it down into the shredder uh, that they established uh, a second ago. And uh, this is kind of funny. Like the gremlins, they're, they're such strange creatures. You can just destroy them. 
with no problem, like uh, lots of goop and, and blood and, and, you know, green blood and, and ichor and things come out of these things as, as you kill a gremlin. All that ichor and stuff really makes this scene gross when he puts yeah. him in the shredder. <laughs> yeah, and he's just coated in it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's funny, but I think this is a really big moment for Clamp, like you kind of uh, insinuated, where he does have, uh, as it's called, a come-to-Jesus moment, and he really kind of adjusts his attitude. Billy and Mr. Forrester explain the situation to Mr. Clamp, and he agrees to help them as uh, Kate is attacked in the elevator. And luckily for her, this is another scary moment. There's a gremlin who drops the elevator, which is... Yeah, the crazy, the the wild-eyed gremlin. Uh, He's just screwing around with the the electrical uh, panel there, and he makes the elevator go down. I mean, God, that's one of my biggest fears. (laughs) Just an elevator dropping, and she manages to escape, thankfully, because she survives it, and this crash opens the doors, so she's able to escape. But things looked pretty dire for Kate there for a while, between the ones who were actually attacking the elevator itself and this drop. Yeah, and it's a, a another gross moment there when the dr- elevator drops. It squishes all the gremlins underneath it, and <laughs> you know she, she's just coated in green goop. Intense for sure. The movie then breaks the fourth wall with a really <laughs> awesome cameo. Uh, they have famous movie critic Leonard Malton, who repeats his criticisms of the first movie on a show called Movie Police. <laughs> and uh, as he's doing this, gremlins attack him, and he he changes his ratings to a 10. Just a nice little bit, um, acknowledging that the first movie was not for everyone um, and still having a little fun with it. Leonard Moulton is funny in it as well. Seems yeah. to have a good sense of humor, that guy. And we go back to the genetics lab here. A gremlin like drinks a random vial of uh, fluid and turns into vegetables and uh, another drinks a brain boosting vial as Christopher Lee walks in, excuse me, uh, Dr. Cather walks in with, uh, it looks like an invasion of the body snatchers pod. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know exactly what it was supposed to be, but that's what it looks like. So maybe just another horror reference. And the gremlin who drank that brain boost vial has like a fit and disappears and then he comes back with glasses which is so funny it's like where did he get those from he also has an accent now oh man just such a funny bit of like what we think makes someone smart (laughs) this new smart gremlin points out a bat gremlin that is very scary this bat gremlin is very freaky looking and he finds that they have a genetic sunblock, which is handy dandy for a gremlin. And, yep. and so the brain gremlin injects the bat gremlin with this sunblock. Although you would think that he would do it to himself, but <laughs> he puts it in the bat gremlin. And the bat gremlin is now immune to one of the things that kills a gremlin. And the employees are nervous because all it has to do is eat three or four children and it would be terrible publicity. <laughs> which I always thought was a very funny line. Uh, But then it flies out and it leaves a great Batman shaped uh, hole in the wall, like the bat symbol, (laughs) a very funny little, uh, little homage. WB is obviously the producer of an owner of Batman. I was reading that Joe Dante is a little bitter that Warner brothers opened this movie directly against Dick Tracy because they didn't want it to 
break the record set by Batman for the box office. So, oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So Joe Dante, a little bitter about that, but not so bitter that uh, he was against putting the bat symbol in the movie, which I always think is a little <laughs> fun thing. There's more mayhem in the clamp building. And like you said, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's their intent, but they're hurling people off balconies. Like people are <laughs> dying. <laughs> yeah. Like, as all this mayhem and chaos is happening, Kate is running to the other end of the lobby. And this is the gremlin that I want to point out as being my new favorite. There's a gremlin who is blocking the elevator doors as she runs. And he's only there for like a second. But he has just these rad sunglasses and shirt. And he's just so fun. And later, he's the guy who plays the saxophone in the musical number. So, now, this is, is this the flasher gremlin? Or are you thinking of no, the one? No, this is, okay. this is before that. So okay. she's, she's running across. And truly, this guy is only there for like a second. And then at the other <laughs> end of this lobby, she finds the flasher gremlin. And she promptly punts him, which is good yeah. for her. Keep an eye out for this, this fun gremlin with sunglasses uh, in the okay. elevator doors. She punts this flasher gremlin and pulls the fire <laughs> alarm. And again, we get a great line from the building. <laughs> it goes, fire, the untamed element, giver of warmth, destroyer of forests. Right now, this building is on fire. <laughs> I, I just, I was like, yeah, the building is, is number one for me. Yeah. A funny bit to have a gremlin flasher when they're all running around naked in this one. He yeah. just draws attention to it. So she kicks him across the room. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like the Donald Duck thing where it's like uh, it's only weird because he's wearing the shirt. <laughs> like, <laughs> we go outside now and we see the Bat Gremlin swoop down, and who does it attack? But poor Murray Futterman. <laughs> this guy cannot catch a break. The Bat Gremlin is so nasty looking, and it swoops down and attacks him. And luckily for Murray, there is some wet cement being poured right next to him, <laughs> so he like grabs the bat out of the air just dunks it in this cement and it gets poured up poured on it and it it freaks out a little bit and flies up to a nearby church and it hardens into a gargoyle and i'm like man this bat gremlin is it has a great little little storyline like it's just perfect length where you get to see it get made it is immune to the sun it gets to explore the world it attacks murray and then it gets taken care of bingo bango bongo no problem <laughs> kind of a fun mo moment for mr futterman's character too he gets to overcome his fear of the gremlins after yeah. the ptsd he has from the first movie and yeah. uh he's he's no longer afraid of them it seems like after the bat comes and attacks him Seriously, I mean, that's definitely a trial by fire, you know. The background went way worse than a normal one, so. We check in with Gizmo, who is still being tortured, this time in a toy shop. <laughs> so, poor, poor guy is still strapped down. Uh, he gets hit with a toy train. It's pretty funny as he's tied to the tracks. Then, Billy and Mr. Forrester are talking to Dr. Catheter when the gremlins again break the fourth wall and they melt the film and cast shadow puppets from the projector. God, so good. It's so fun. I imagine it must have been really awesome to see in theaters. I know that for the VHS release, they actually edited this scene so that it looks like they messed with the film. Um, just a really fun little way of breaking the fourth wall and have like a fun goof. But this is also really smart because it lets us skip the boring exposition we've already heard. Um, <laughs> well, now having us understand that the doctor is caught up. So yeah, it's like, well, we need a way to have them talk to 
the doctor, but nobody cares about that. So <laughs> let's just have this extra like little bit of comedy in here. And I think it's a great job. Um, the gremlins after destroying the film put in uh, a nude vo- volleyball. <laughs> <spill>. <laughs> yeah. They're such, they're such little stinkers, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very funny. And a mother comes out, like it, we see it's back to real life and the mother comes out complaining that the second gremlins is even worse than the first. <laughs> this is actually based on a true story. Um, during a screening of gremlins, Joe Dante uh, was severely criticized by a mother who walked out of the theater with her daughter. Uh, this was during the kitchen massacre scene when the mom is killing all these gremlins and the daughter was begging to go back in the theater and then literally <laughs> like pulled free of the mom and hid in the theater to watch the rest of the movie. Yeah. That so. kitchen scene in the first movie where mom just <laughs> annihilates so many gremlins. Oh, that really great. rules. That's an awesome scene. It is awesome. And uh, like uh, Marissa, who was the guest on that episode said, it's really interesting because so often that scene would end in the mother's death. Yeah, Like, she would be an easy body count upper. But Joe Dante, in that movie as well, really does kind of an interesting way of making three-dimensional characters for the side characters. Mm-hmm. So I really, I really like that, and I think that's something he does really well. We see the movie, uh, and Hulk Hogan <laughs> asks the gremlins to stop, <laughs> because when people come to the movie, they want cold soda, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. I know that's the three things I look for when I go to the movies. <laughs> yep. Hulk, uh, the Hulkster does a great job here. I think the VHS version is different, but I don't remember how. Do you Do you know? Uh, you know, I think you're right, but it, it's escaping me as well. The version okay. that I had uh, had all the like theater stuff in it. Yeah, so. yep. Same with mine. Um, but it's it's a fun time. Hulk Hogan, it was a simpler time. <laughs> he, wasn't, he didn't have quite the legacy he has now. But. Yeah. Um, it's just nice to be reminded of that time. <laughs> this was way before he ate all that pork. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and now we find uh, Frank in the newsroom. So we get to see Frank again. And he sees that no media is being allowed in. And he has the idea to broadcast what's happening uh, and get the scoop. And he's going to use uh, a guy who's been taking a lot of photos. So he obviously knows how to work a camera. as <laughs> his cameraman. Mm-hmm. it's just like a funny like that's also like yeah just go with it this guy knows how to work a camera <laughs> and yeah. they're recording everything and we get to see a lot more uh, just more havoc this is what like this is the joy of this movie is like you get some yeah. character moments and then we get to see the gremlins do their thing and we're all tuning <laughs> in for the gremlins so yeah this is exactly what we're here to see i think joe dante knows that and so we get plenty of these scenes of gremlins just transforming and trying stuff and pranking people and just having all these fun uh, adventures. Yeah. One dumb little sight gag when Fred finds the, the cameraman, uh, they, they pass by a sign that says the safety channel and out from it comes a guy all decked out in bandages from his ordeals <laughs> with the, uh, the gremlins. You know, I don't think I even noticed that. Just a, so. a dumb little, a dumb little moment like that. Yeah. I'll have to keep an eye out for it next time, but there's all kinds of fun little goofs like that. I mean, yep. it really is the perfect movie to keep an eye on the background for. Mm-hmm. We get some more gremlins transforming themselves. A gremlin drinks a vial that we saw electrify a rat earlier and turns oh, into right. pure lightning. 
Um, it's very cool looking. There is a, a vial that says acid, do not throw in face. <laughs> and, and a gremlin promptly throws it in another gremlin's face. <laughs> um, creates a phantom of the opera gremlin. We also see the back of the lady gremlin. This lady gremlin is so funny. She's great. She's the, the real hero of this movie. <laughs> she is dolled up. She is looking, ready to go out on the town. And Billy and Co. arrive. And the lady gremlin immediately makes her move on Mr. Forrester. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's, he is getting smooched by her as Billy and, and uh, Dr. Catheter go to get his collection of guns, Dr. Catheter's. Instead, they find a gremlin there who attacks Dr. Catheter. And in his weakened state, he's uh, roasted by the electric gremlin. <laughs> and it's, it's really in this moment where I started thinking about that Key and Peel sketch. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they have a sketch about the writer's room for this movie where somebody came in and just said, there are no bad ideas and yes to every single gremlin idea. Yeah, and, yeah I've seen that one. And, you know... I think that those two probably have a love for this movie and I, I, I think that it's all in good fun, but I love that that's what happened with this movie. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's so great that they have all these crazy gremlins and I wish that more movies were willing to take wacky swings like this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot could stand to benefit from taking a little more risk. And I think that this movie is a perfect example of the benefit of that kind of thing. Yeah. I think, there's plenty of laughs in Gremlins 1, but it, it is a very like big departure, I would say, from the first movie. And it's interesting to do that with a sequel. I, I would be interested in seeing more of that. Like I said, this is a creature feature through and through. It's the same thing with the first one, where I, I think that there's, it might be a comedy, but it is also definitely a horror movie. I think that that's, at, that's the lifeblood of this movie. And it's in its own subgenre of creature feature. The same thing with critters and uh, and stuff like that. The ghoulies, just all these like ripoffs of Gremlins are definitely considered horror movies. And it's funny that Gremlins is kind of a victim of its own success with the comedy, where people think of it just as a comedy because of that. The female Gremlin. There's a lot of guys that watched like uh, Willy Wonka and they got obsessed with like uh, <laughs> the scene where the girl blows up and becomes a big blueberry. <laughs> or like they watched uh, Tailspin or um, Bedknobs and Broomsticks and they became like uh, obsessed with, you know, human looking animals and things like that. Yeah. It, it's very interesting that you don't see a lot of uh, people that are obsessed. <laughs> uh, like, you know, they, they don't have like sexual fetishes for the female gremlin and maybe it's out there and i just have never seen it it's It's in it's in the the darker corners of the internet (laughs) (laughs) but it definitely seems like the sort of scene like uh where where you watch it and you just go uh oh god i hope this doesn't awaken anything inside of me i I did this time i don't know (laughs) yeah those those people are out there you'll find a community greggy yeah, I think uh, my wife might be getting uh, a special, February, you know, Valentine's Day present of green face paint and uh, a big red lipstick, uh, very shiny red lipstick. Why did you get me this pink leopard skirt? Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, that's for me. <laughs> so, yeah, basically my point is that there's a lot of great stuff in this and the, the wacky gremlins are a lot of fun. but. Oh, yeah. Mohawk, the main gremlin, has now Dr. Catheter's gun. And Dr. Catheter is toasted. 
So Mohawk opens fire on Billy, but when he escapes Billy, he flees the room. Mohawk drinks a vial just labeled with a spider. <laughs> it's very <laughs> ominous. We don't, so we don't see the transformation immediately, but I'm just going to talk about it right now because it's close enough. The transformation is really gross. It has yeah. the kind of like sickening cracks of like bones shifting. And mm. one thing I really like is Rick Baker loves to use shadow to kind of skip over the challenge of showing the transformation realistically while yeah. also creating some really cool mystery. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a cool effect. It doesn't feel like a cheat. Like, uh, I mean, no, he actually not. had to make these these shadows and stuff. So mm-hmm. I think it's easier probably than than making a thing that is going to transform into a spider. But on the other hand, you don't feel like, you know, you, you missed out on it completely. Definitely not. And I think that Rick Baker is really a pro at this. It's, I mean, he does it in The Howling. He does it in It's Alive. He does it in a lot of fun movies where he really puts an emphasis on the way the shadows look on his creatures. Very cool mm-hmm. work. Yeah, and uh, just... Real quick, before he becomes the spider, it also shows another gremlin drinking some white potion of some sort. It doesn't actually say. And, uh, you know, it just comes pouring out of his, his body because he got shot up with the machine gun. Yeah, there that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, Classic it's a nice cartoon, little bit. Yeah, cartoon physics there. Oh, yeah. Um, again, it feels like that Looney Tunes bit that we saw at the very beginning. I think that people... People don't acknowledge it enough for the tone setter that it is. And people are just like, oh, it's like a fun thing. But it really sets the tone in a way that this whole movie feels like a Looney Tunes movie. The antics feel like Looney Tunes antics. So um, I think that that really is close to Looney Tunes as it gets when he uh, has the liquid come out of the bullet (laughs) holes. And so we go back to Gizmo and... Luckily, Gizmo wakes up and he remembers the wise words of Rambo that he heard earlier. And he says, to survive a war, you've got to become a war. And Gizmo starts getting buff. He hits the gym. He's pumping iron. He's lifting a weight and falls through the floor because the weight is so heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Gizmo, he's just doing his thing. you got to love it. And so he's getting ready to kind of get his revenge. Clamp. Uh, who's up in his office just kind of killing time. This is, again, when you talked about him being very bored, this scene really, uh, I think, also kind of hits that, where he's just standing up there kind of meandering around his office, and he sees the Frank come on the TV, and he's baffled, and he just says, Dracula? (laughs) (laughs) It, It really made me laugh. And Billy then meets up with Clamp in his office. And Clamp shows him a tape that they've prepared for the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> this tape is very funny, but apparently Joe Dante heard about a real thing that this is based on. That yeah. the filmmakers found out that CNN has a video for this purpose in its archives. And that when you know, they're supposed to hold the video for release until the end of the world is confirmed. So whenever the end of the world happens, you can expect a nice video saying, we hope you enjoyed living <laughs> from CNN. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to that, I guess. It's a nice little cat. Clamp shows him this tape, and then they're attacked by the electric gremlin who's traveling through kind of the circuitry. And Billy manages to trap this gremlin in hell 
or the office equivalent of that, which is permanently on hold and listening to music. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bad spot for him. They realize that they need to get out of here, and Billy and Clamps, they hatch a plan to trick the gremlins into thinking it's night and leaving the building. So Clamp uses his secret exit. Of course he has a secret exit. <laughs> yeah, he's very excited to finally get a chance to use it. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would be as well. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the minute I build that secret exit, I'm just waiting for that day. And so he uses it and gets out. We don't, exa- we don't hear the plan uh, exactly just yet. But he goes out there and Murray manages to sneak into the building by going back into that secret elevator. Murray Futterman now in the building, ready to help. There's another gremlin who's messing with the climate controls of the building, and he knocks out Billy while Billy is looking for Gizmo. Uh, Gizmo is off making his Rambo arsenal, so Billy doesn't find him, and he gets knocked out. Meanwhile, there's a lot happening, and <laughs> it's very like a lot of quick scenes here. Um, Frank is now having an interview with the smart gremlin, the brain gremlin. And this brain gremlin says that all they want is civilization. And he goes on this really long monologue about how, oh, everything that you've worked so hard to get, we want it. And, uh, you know, certainly there will be stumbles and we'll accidentally kill people. But, you know, it's, it's all in the, in the service of making this progress. And while all the gremlins are watching that interview, Clamp hangs a set painting that makes it look like it's night in front of the lobby. So this is their grand plan. <laughs> We're going to yeah. trick them by just hanging a painting of nighttime. <laughs> yeah, classic uh, Wiley Coyote painting the, uh, the tunnel on the, the cliff. Oh, yeah. Stuff. So that plan is being enacted. Seems to be going fine. Billy wakes up tied to a dentist chair. Not a fun place to be, even if you're not tied there. <laughs> <laughs> and he's attacked by a gremlin wielding a drill. But Murray manages to come in. Thank God he snuck in because he shines that bright light that they use uh, that they have above the chair, and he shines it at the gremlin and manages to save Billy. So yeah, and and it was the it was the crazy nutty gremlin that was the one that was going to be attacking him. Which is if one of them, if I have to choose one gremlin to strap me down to a dentist chair, (laughs) I think he would be the last one I would choose. Oh yeah, yeah. Thank God for Murray. Yeah, he's wielding like the drill too. So you're like, what? A, oh, he, that guy definitely doesn't have the aim to to, to be a dentist. It's sad that he goes, but you know, it, it is what it is. And Kate finds Marla in, in webbed by the spider gremlin. Yes, and so she is hesitant to help her at first, but Marla admits that she was trying to steal Billy, but he was chased. Kate starts to let Marla out, but unfortunately for them, the spider gremlin returns. And one thing I wanted to note was that the lighting really looks a lot like Alien here. Hmm. There's a lot of kind of interesting dark colors. I think the webs really help to make it look like Alien. When Mohawk uh, kind of (laughs) rolls up, he feels like the queen or like uh, one of the xenomorphs. Yeah, I would say definitely the creepiest gremlin of them all. Oh, yeah, he is horrific, especially now that we actually see him. I mean, the transformation was bad, but this guy is really just nasty looking. (laughs) And Gizmo arrives to save the day. He shoots a flaming arrow at the spider gremlin and sets it ablaze. 
and boy, it's just fantastic. Gizmo, yeah, so cute. He gets this great hero moment. You've been waiting for him to jump in the whole movie. Just like in the first one, he gets that great kill that manages <laughs> to end the the main gremlin of the of the group. And yeah, Mohawk just pushed him too far. He couldn't take yeah, it anymore. Exactly to be cu- uh, to something about a war becoming a war. I don't know. I had it. <laughs> anyway, I do worry. Has Gizmo lost his innocence now? I mean, wow. You know, it seems very possible. Gizmo was such a, a lovable little lad, and you know, they talk about it a little bit later. It's kind of just throwaway line, but he's he refuses to give up his headband. <laughs> yeah. So, so who knows? Yeah, um, is Gizmo emo now? I hope not. <laughs> I hope he regains that childlike innocence again. Yeah, you know, with with the proper uh, tools, I think we can get him back to where he was. So, mm. and the whole group watches this uh, gremlin burn. It's very cathartic. You get to be like, yeah, all right, maybe we can do this. And we also get a really funny joke here, where they replicate the super dark Christmas speech from the first one, <laughs> this time about President Lincoln, and they're just like, "We don't have time for this." <laughs> yeah, that's the only that's the only selling out of of poor Phoebe Cates's character. <laughs> yeah, redoing that scene, but it is very funny, especially you know in relation to the first movie. They're all doing that, and the brain gremlin is downstairs singing New York, New York. And it just <laughs> turns into staging a whole musical number. It's yes. So over the top and so funny. And like I said, that sunglasses guy from before plays the saxophone. So I get <laughs> to see him again. That's a nice time. Yeah. The tiles bit with all the tiles of the female gremlin. Yeah. And then she comes out through the, the eye, it like irises out yeah. and lets her come up. I was expecting her to start singing, but uh, that it cuts away before then. Just <laughs> this is the ultimate in like, uh, where did they come up with all these costumes? Yeah. Like where did they, when did they get these tiles printed? But uh, of course it is just cartoon logic and, and you just have to go with it. Very funny scene. Yeah, it is funny. And this general mayhem just absolutely continues. There's references galore. I mean, there's uh, one gremlin kills another gremlin because he takes his photo. One gets a Warner Brothers tattoo. Um, The Phantom of the Opera gremlin, Phantoms of the Opera. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the plan fails. This great plan that they had, um, clouds roll in real quick. And just like that, their whole plan is kaput, which is, it's very funny that they're like, oh, we're ready. We're about to drop this thing. And then it's just like, nope, uh, you're screwed. Funny way to be like, all right, keep the movie going. We're not quite at the runtime. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it, it was before this part where they, the plan fails. Um, but there is one moment that kind of like heightens how important it is to keep the gremlins you know, to kill the gremlins or whatever. War munitions that they all have. There's grenade launchers and machine guns and things like that. Uh, TNT. And then they show up, like a blueprint of the Statue of Liberty with a big X over it. Like they're oh, going to go out and yeah, blow up the Statue of Liberty. I thought when I was watching this, thank God that wasn't like the Twin Towers. Like that would have been, <laughs> you know, a whole new set of uh, conspiracy theories would have been boring yeah. right there. The gremlins did it. Um <laughs> 
I mean, in my in my head canon, I mean, if the gremlins were real, they probably would have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, in in our real world, it, it was uh, other things. You know, George Bush. And <laughs> exactly. George Bush also secretly a gremlin. So at the end of the day, <laughs> a um, lot of people don't know that. Yeah, he's got years for sure. He's trying to communicate that with his paintings. <laughs> <laughs> so their their new plan basically is. We don't get to hear it immediately, but Billy tells Murray to get the fire hose and aim it into the lobby. He is hesitant, but Billy tells him that he's got to do it. And he tells Kate to go hide Gizmo, and he tells Marla to just keep smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, something I made a note of early on. Like, lots of indoor smoking in this movie. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a different era. It sure is. Uh, and and <laughs> she's Marla in particular is smoking like, like a yeah. chimney. Murray goes to get the fire hose and he loses it on a gremlin who loogies on him. Yeah. <laughs> it just absolutely goes nuts and then opens fire with the hose. And the gremlins are all multiplying and they're all kind of on the ground with this really gross scene. Uh, again, this replication with the pods that grow on them is really just disgusting. It's yeah, great. they kind of melt in a way as well, and, and they like smoke up and stuff, and yeah. it's, it's really gross. It is gross, and, but it's also really impressive detail. Like each of those gremlins in the like pods on their back is fully detailed. Like they look like a complete gremlin. It's really impressive. So yeah, like the puppets in this movie and the animatronics are are all very top notch. Gizmo is so expressive, as is all the different you know evil gremlins and things yeah. like that. The gremlins are now all wet which makes them vulnerable to the electric gremlin who Billy shoots out from a nearby phone. And I mean, man, you thought the melting from the water was gross. <laughs> this is just absolutely horrific. This is true body horror. You see their skeletons with flesh, like hanging off of it. It's yeah. disgusting. And it's so, it's unsettling. If I was a kid, I would be pretty scared by that scene. I think, <laughs> especially since you spent this whole movie being like, oh, yeah, they're bad guys, but they're fun. And then, like, they're killed so brutally. <laughs> yeah. it's a uh... And, it, of course, Joe Dante, he has to put some more gags in there. There's a Wicked Witch of the West that says, I'm melting, I'm melting. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the brain gremlin continues to try to sing New York, New York as he's melting away. Yes, he, he croaks out one last one as he, uh, as he finishes up. The police and Daniel Clamp storm in just in time to not do anything. <laughs> They find Frank and his cameraman, who Frank immediately gets promoted to weeknight primetime anchor mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and gets given a credit card to go get a new wardrobe. So Frank gets a really nice happy ending. There's also a nice spark between Clamp and Marla. We've seen that <laughs> kind of power hunger that she has. And uh, she w- went after Billy the second that he got a little bit of shine on him. So she's really into Clamp. And uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he... Thanks Billy for saving them and then promotes her to head of public relations. So she gets a nice advancement as well. Billy gets some career advancement because Clamp sees his drawing of the hometown and he loves it. So he wants to build it as Clamp's Corner in New Jersey. I wonder if this is a reference to Tice's Corner in New Jersey, uh, which is a little kind of shopping center uh, around where I grew up, but Hmm. who knows? Mm -hmm. And he says it's going to be the biggest and most sensational quiet little town ever, which is just a funny line. And he wants to talk to Billy about merchandising Gizmo's likeness, which I think would work out pretty well for him at the end uh-huh. of the day. 
we see a lot of uh, Gremlins toys are really starting to come out now, especially with the work that uh, NECA toys is doing. They have, they have a gizmo who comes with the Rambo stuff. They have a bunch of different variants of the Gremlins. They have Spike himself, a lot of fun stuff that they're putting out. So uh, great stuff to see, but you know, there was also a lot of stuff back when these movies were actually popular. I talked about in the first uh, episode of Gremlins that I had uh, a little Furby uh, that was in the shape of a Mogwai. And my mom actually let me know that she was pretty sure that it was hers, <laughs> that I had just taken it from her. You know, who's to, isn't that what kids do? But yeah, so that, that merchandising thing, Gremlins are everywhere. It's funny that they talk about it so explicitly, just kind of a little meta commentary that I like. Gizmo and the couple are leaving. And Forrester calls down to say that he's stuck upstairs. <laughs> Basically, he finds out that the elevators are down and or destroyed. And so they're not going to be able to get to him very quickly. And he says, okay, and shrinks into the corner as the lady gremlin comes out to here comes the bride. And she's wearing a wedding dress. And he has just kiss marks all over his face. <laughs> um, very funny. It's I don't know if I would call it comeuppance for him, but it's <laughs> it's certainly like a funny ending for the villain since uh, he never really did that much help. So right. he, he just he kind of uh, he kind of shrugs and goes with it as well. Yeah, he's like, well, this is just the way it is now. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, very funny scene. Although when I watched it as a little kid, I always thought, oh no, there's a lot of gremlins still around because they're singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't yeah. think there are. I think it's just her. But also, you know, if they still have a gremlin, yeah, one is all could be a problem, especially when they're, I think they're in a bathroom there. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's not like Gizmo couldn't ever get wet again. So, yeah. Um, yeah, Gizmo leaves with uh, Billy and Kate. So, you know, it could all, it could all happen again. Yeah. I actually read that in the original script, Randall Peltzer, who's Billy's dad, was going to return. It, the scene was set to shoot. Hoyt Axton was available to shoot it, but the movie was literally running too long. And so they were just like, all right, we're just not going to use it. But he was going to give Gizmo his newest invention, which was like a wetsuit that would prevent him from ever getting wet again. All so right. uh, in theory, Gizmo could have uh, not been an issue, but at the very least that uh, female gremlin would have been. So yeah, well, I mean, the way the ga- that guy's inventions work, that would be no guarantee. <laughs> Very true. Fair enough. And a great point. And you get a nice little uh, the end in some script there. I, I-, I always uh, can get behind a movie doing that. But it's not entirely the end because the credits start rolling and three times Daffy comes out <laughs> during during the credits to complain about their length and to ask why we're still hanging around. And then... At the very, very end, Porky, Porky Pig comes out to do the, the, the that's all folks thing. Uh, and here comes Daffy one last time. <laughs> he steals Porky's job and then gets hit with another shield. A lot of fun. Really provides a nice wrap up and a palate cleanser for the movie. And it's a nice little aperitif, you know? It's, it's yep. a fun time. And I think that it does a really great ending. Uh, what do, you, what do you think about the ending? We kind of blazed through it there at the end. Do you think that this is a satisfying way that it ends for you? Or do you wish that it had kind of gone a different way? Yeah, I think it's good because it's uh, well set up throughout the movie. When I was a kid, I thought he only sprayed the, uh, the hose to like stun the gremlins or whatever. So they would stop while he, he shot them with the, uh, 
the electricity uh, gremlin. But now that I'm older, I also realize that, uh, you know, water is a conductor and everything. So it helped shoot the uh, electric gremlin around. Uh, but yeah, they set up the electric gremlin. Good, good payoff there. A funny little part when Clamp's troops are coming in, uh, they stop at each of the revolving doors that don't work and then, you know, eventually use the regular door that does work. Yeah, the, very good ending. You know, the, they were worried, Kate and Billy were worried about having enough money throughout the, the movie. So nice payoff there where they can now finally get married. I agree. I think I think it's a lot of fun. You talked a bunch about the kind of goofy looking gremlin. Is that your favorite one? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Goofy gremlin is my number one. I already said my two favorites, but they're the uh, the one in the elevator and then probably the secretary one. But I'm curious for people who are listening, definitely let us know which your favorite gremlin is because, God, there are so many and they all have great designs. So, And also, I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing my due diligence here if I didn't ask you this will this will kind of lead into talking about why this is the best horror movie ever made, but I'm curious why you chose the sequel and not the original. Like if this was the first one was not was never on the table when we talked. It was you immediately <laughs> the, you immediately were like I want to do Gremlins too. So I'm curious why the sequel is the one that sticks out to you. Gremlins one is a great movie. Uh, very very fun in its own way. Uh, more scary, I would say more grounded for sure although it, it has its cartoonish moments as well uh but gremlins 2 yeah it has it has the crazy creatures it has uh the cartoon logic you know as we've been talking about it all these things are set up and then pay off in such a satisfying way throughout the movie and it's it's such a right turn from the first movie it it kind of doesn't have the uh, the sequel effect where you're doing everything again, just maybe bigger or, you know, just trying to recapitulate on the uh, the original the original themes that made people like the first movie. Gremlins two is a masterpiece. I think it's a a wonderful movie. It's maybe a perfect movie. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because, <laughs> well, on the surface, it is. This, the typical sequel thing of the first one, but bigger. It's Gremlins, but in New York. But that is truly just the structure. There's mm-hmm. so much more fun stuff that this movie manages to pack into that, that it really feels like its own thing, while still maintaining the heart that was in Gremlins. Uh, we get these really incredible creature designs. We get some incredible script writing. It is razor sharp. And we get just a gag a minute. It's, it's, they pack it in so tight, but you also get these scares. You get this body horror. You get these legitimately creepy and unsettling moments that really help to remind you of why this is a creature feature and why this is a horror movie. And, you know, at the end of the day, Joe Dante has said he prefers this to the original. So who are we to argue with him? Exactly. I just feel bad because when you when you told me I could talk about Gremlins 2 if I wanted to, you said you just have to come up with an argument for why it's the best horror movie of all time. And I feel like I maybe haven't done that because it's such a funny movie. The scares maybe aren't there, but I would just say it is definitely the best film ever made. And uh, I, I think that's unequivocal. I, I don't think anybody can argue with me about that. It is so in a way it is kind of the best horror movie ever made because the best of all 
of all movies would have to be the best of every genre. Sure. And so I would say Gremlins 2 is the best film ever made uh, for all the reasons we've spoken about, especially, you know, the the female gremlin with her pouty lips and uh, <laughs> <laughs> perfect green hair, et cetera, uh, that, that people aren't generally very horny for. And I think that's uh, uh, a crime, really. Yeah, if you, if you take one thing away from, yeah. from this, it's please be horny for the lady gremlin. <laughs> yes, yes, please. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think that you're right, but there are plenty of not scary horror movies. And I think that this does have some moments that are at the very least unsettling. So this is, without a doubt, a creature feature to me. I think it is a horror movie, and because it is the best movie ever made, period, that does, in fact, default to making it the best horror movie as well. So, okay. handled. Hey, George, you convinced me, dude. <laughs> I'm with you. Well, I'm, I'm glad I managed, because uh, I, I believe it. This is my favorite horror movie of all time. <laughs> I do really love this movie, though, so I, I want to make sure that people do understand that oh yeah it's, absolutely it, and I a do, lot of times on podcasts i say i really like something and i'm being <laughs> ironic and, and jokey this is not one of those cases that yeah. i really genuinely love this movie if you go to my letterboxd uh the greggiest on letterboxd uh i have one favorite movie out there, <laughs> and it is gremlins too so uh, i'm 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 legit on this one I think this was a really fun conversation. I had a really great time talking about this awesome movie with you. Uh, and now is the time when uh, you get to plug anything you want, Greggy. So any, anything you got going on? Yeah, actually, I, I'm trying to do a little bit of a, a independent podcast blitz here where I, I go on and tell people after several years of doing the podcast for wonderful podcast, we're going to hang it up. You know, we've come to the end of, of the storyline that we're doing on there and we're going we're gonna to retire that podcast, but uh, that doesn't mean I'm done with making that sweet content. I'm moving on. Uh, we're going to be doing a Twitch show on twitch.tv slash powerwarriors. That's all one word and with a Z at the end. Uh, every Sunday night from 7 to 10, we're going to be getting on there and uh, playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And, and there's a, an original, original story, an original world that we're doing. Uh, we're also going to be releasing that as a podcast. Uh, you'll be able to find that on powerwarriors.com once it's live, which uh, is probably not yet when you're listening to this. Uh, but you can go to twitch.tv slash powerwarriors, follow there, and that would help me a lot if, if anybody listening would do that. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely miss podcasts are wonderful. It's a great podcast, but people can definitely go back and listen to the back catalog, and I definitely recommend that. And I know I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for Power Warriors, and it sounds like a lot of fun. So people should definitely check that out. Um, when it goes live. Thank uh, you, George. Yeah, as far as my plugs, you can find the show on Twitter. Um, we're on Letterboxd at George Heff. Uh, the show is also on Facebook and Instagram, so you can find us on there. And yeah, I mean, it would be helpful if people could rate and give us a review if you're enjoying Guys, the show. Guys, come on. If you're listening to the podcast, just get on there and rate and review it. He wants five stars. Yeah, you if say you, whatever you want in the rating, just give them the five stars and say something, please. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it don't don't review it if you're going to give it a bad review. <laughs> right. Right. No zero. No one stars. <laughs> That's gauche. Don't do that. Yeah. And and even don't do a four. Just give them a five. I mean, it's who's it hurting? You're already on the website. Just do it. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, I, I appreciate that earnest plea for my listeners, Greggy. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks again for coming on. Bye, everyone. Bye.